FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. You know, uh, no matter who you voted for in the runoff elections, and no matter which side of the partisan divide you reside upon, history gathers us into a unifying embrace and marches us all forward together. And with that in mind, all of us are now a part of a historic moment in the state of Georgia, the election of the first black United States senator from this state. And for that matter, uh, the first black Democrat uh, to be elected to the U.S. Senate in the South. Uh, an, An amazing moment for Raphael Warnock and all of the people who supported him in this race. Before I introduce the panel, uh, which is exactly the right group of people to talk about all this, let's hear what Raphael Warnock had to say to his supporters last night. A son of my late father, who was a pastor, a veteran, and a small businessman, and my mother, who as a teenager growing up in Waycross, Georgia, used to pick somebody else's cotton. But the other day, because this is America, the 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. So I come before you tonight as a man who knows that the improbable journey that led me to this place in this historic moment in America could only happen here. Raphael Warnock uh, declared the winner of uh, Senate race number two, uh, the special Senate election over Kelly Leffler by a couple of percentage points. It's, it's a larger margin than would allow for, a, uh, for the Republicans to ask for a recount. All right, let's get right to this uh, wonderful panel that we have with us uh, today. Uh, Greg Bluestein uh, joins me on most Wednesdays, the uh, political reporter for the AJC. And even though, Greg Bluestein, I don't think you got a wink of sleep last night, you're <laughs> a trooper, and here you are on this Wednesday morning. How are you holding up, Greg? I'm holding up just fine. It was an exciting night. Uh, the uh, I was at the Kelly uh, the Kelly Leffler slash Republican um, election party. Of course, Senator Purdue was not there because he's isolating because of the coronavirus exposure. Um, but uh, yeah, it ended around I think one or two, and and you know there was still action overnight. And so I kept pretty busy. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Uh, we also have uh, with us, uh, w- welcoming back today, uh, Mariella Romero. She's the director of Computer- community empowerment at Univision. And Mariella, you also have a show on Univision uh, that I always want to give you a chance to uh, mention. So why don't you do that? Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, yes, my show is called Conexión Fin de Semana. And last uh, weekend we had... Uh, an interview with Reverend Warnock and Mr. Ossoff, as well as iconic uh, civil rights leader Dolores Huerta. So if you want to check it out, it's in Spanish. Saturdays at 6 okay. on Univision. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie uh, is with us as well. Uh, Dr. Gillespie, of course, a p- professor of political science at Emory University, but also the director of the James Weldon Johnson 
Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory. Uh, Andre, it's awfully good to have you here on this uh, very important day. Glad to be here. Thanks. Uh, we're also joined by your colleague at Emory University, uh, Dr. Alan Abramowitz, um, who is a professor of political science. And uh, Alan, I, I'm really interested in hearing from both you and Andra on how you're crunching the numbers that you both have seen since last night. So, Alan, thank you two for uh, joining us. Sure. I'm delighted to be here today. All right, let's uh, let's get started on a couple of pieces of information. I, I want to, according to the New York Times, by the way, John Ossoff uh, at about eight o'clock this morning declared victory in his race against David Perdue, but nobody has called that race yet. We'll talk about why Ossoff feels confident that he is going to be the winner uh, during the show today. Okay, the New York Times uh, at about five o'clock this morning which is the most recent report they did on outstanding votes, uh, said they believe there are probably about 73,000 votes remaining to be counted uh, this morning and this afternoon. Um, they include in that 1,000 Election Day votes. Their data shows that Republicans did better than Democrats on a lot of the Election Day voting. 56,000 mail-in voting votes and about 1,000 uh, early in-person votes. The biggest batch, now this is according to 538, uh, and Politico is in DeKalb County, which still has about 19,000 votes to count. They're going to start counting at 10 o'clock this morning. Fulton County has about 4,000 absentee votes left. They're going to start, at a, they've already started at about 8.30 this morning. And Chatham County has about 3,000 mail-in votes. And we focus on them, Greg Bluestein, because we know those are basically likely to be Democratic uh, uh, counties, which is one of the reasons Ossoff, who's leading by a sliver against uh, Purdue, feels confident in saying he won, Greg. Yeah, and it is a sliver, but it's still 16,000 votes, which is bigger than the margin <clears throat> that Joe Biden, <clears throat> excuse me, carried Georgia by. Um, and, and as you mentioned, yeah, the biggest troves of these of these outstanding ballots are in three Democratic strongholds, and, and, and the biggest being in DeKalb, which is splitting basically 80-20 and sometimes 85-15. Um, for the Democrats. So they, they expect to gain a lot more ground um, uh, later on today and, and maybe even into tomorrow as long as these tallies keep on being counted. Um, and I, I think we're going to probably see a call um, today as DeCab starts to report some of these, these, these final troves of votes. Yeah, I think, um, Alan, it's my suspicion, uh, and of course I'm speculating, that uh, the calls by the Associated Press and the networks are waiting for that, uh, particularly, as Greg says, that DeKalb County total to come in and that we could see uh, a call for Ossoff, uh, uh, Alan, at some point relatively soon, in, uh, by early this afternoon, right? Absolutely. I, I think there's no, no question at this point uh, that... Uh, looking at the outstanding votes and wh where they're coming from, and the fact that uh, many of them are uh, absentee ballots that tend to favor Democrats, um, Ossoff's margin is only going to grow. Uh, the New York Times uh, projected uh, a few hours ago that in the end Ossoff would have a margin of close to one percentage point, which would be uh, you know, some, something on the order of 40,000 uh, votes. Uh, so that's considerably larger, actually, than Biden's margin which I believe was 11,780 votes. 
That number sticks in my head for some reason. Eleven thousand. <laughs> Seventy nine. Seventy nine. Eighty with <laughs> Oh, yeah, right. Uh, Andre, right, 79. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, Andre, just in case, just in case there are any listeners out there who don't understand Alan's very funny joke, uh, that was a number uh, that uh, Donald Trump told uh, Brad Raffensburg he expected him to find for him so he could win Georgia. But Andre, go ahead, weigh in on all this. Um, I, I mean, I agree with Alan. Um, so the confidence is being born out of where the outstanding ballots are. Um, the Republican... Uh, the Republican candidates are going to cling to uh, the military and the overseas vote, which they think is going to go overwhelmingly in their favor. That may not be true. Um, and in the case of Senator Leffler, um, the margin by which uh, Reverend Warnock is ahead of her is so far that she's not actually going to be able to demand a recount. And so that's actually going to limit her options going forward. So, you know, it's a question of does she uh, – follow Donald Trump's playbook and try to be litigious and question votes everywhere. Uh, but, you know, she just does not have the recount option at her disposal at this point. And we will wait the final election results to see how uh, much uh, Ossoff's margin grows against Purdue to see whether or not he's in the same situation. Mariella, why don't you weigh in in general on how you uh, watched last night and your feelings as you saw it unfold? But if you would, also, uh, given your close uh, relationship with the uh, uh, Latino Hispanic communities, um, how were your friends and neighbors, the people you cover in your job, uh, how were they talking about this runoff election in the run-up to it? Well, it, it was uh, something really uh, historical for the Latino community. This has been uh, the runoff where more Latinos have participated than ever before. And I have to uh, recognize the work that has been done in Georgia by organizations like Galeo, the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials, for more than 10 years, they have been educating uh, Latinos about the importance of civic engagement. Um, and, you know, locally, uh, also Georgia Familias Unidas, the Coalition of Latino Leaders, Dignidad Inmigrante, Los Vecinos de Beautiful Highway, and the Latino Community Fund, they have all... Uh, joint forces to educate the public. And after um, Georgia uh, went to Biden, uh, then national groups like Poder Latinx, Mi Familia Vota, Mi Gente, Hispanic Federation, um, and others came to Georgia and also, you know, activated uh, the same tactics that they have used in, in, in places like Arizona to really bring uh, Latino voters to the polls but also, you know, the turnout in the Asian community and, of course, the African-American community has been uh, historical. Um, I want to get to, in just a minute, where the votes came from. What, what made this possible, certainly for Warnock and, and Ossoff, and apparently, who will apparently win, too. But before I do, Greg, um, I want to read you a tweet that literally just came in about 15 minutes ago from Trump. They just happened to find 50,000 ballots late last night. The USA is embarrassed by fools. Our election process is worth, worse than that of a third world country, of third world countries. So, Greg, um, we know the president is going to call fraud in this election again, to the extent he even thinks about it uh, once the Electoral College uh, vote is confirmed by the uh, Congress. But, but, Greg, what was going on at, with among the Republicans who were gathered to cheer on Leffler 
and Purdue last night when it became increasingly clear that the races were not going their way. Were they, too, trumpeting this notion that something must be wrong for Republicans to be losing? No, I didn't hear any of that outright. I mean, remember, these gatherings are mo- a mix of volunteers, operatives, and just you know donors. So there's some very high information folks who who know exactly what's going on, and others who are just looking at the screens. And if look, if you're just looking at the screen, and Kelly Leffler and David Perdue are up by uh, a point or two all night, and and, and you know you, you have no reason to believe anything's going to change. But meanwhile, like you know, folks who are actually looking at the trends and what votes were still outstanding and and the fact that Metro Atlanta and then parts of Metro Atlanta and parts of, of, of rural Georgia, Democrats were overperforming even Joe Biden, uh, his, his rate of, uh, of votes. Um, you know, that was the trouble sign. And I just remember telling, I was just talking to some, you know, just activists and they were all excited. I said, I don't want to bring you down, but, you know, Senator Leffler is going to lose tonight. Oh, she's not. There's no way. She's up by two points right now, Greg. Mm-hmm. And, there's, and it's 95 percent reported. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to get past that barrier sometimes. Uh, Andra, um, you and Alan uh, really pay the closest attention, I think, to how data uh, informs us about these elections. So help you and Alan. I'll start with you, Andra. How did this happen last night? Where did the votes come from? Uh, Greg talks about uh, the Democrats, particularly Warnock, overperforming what even Biden did in Georgia. Take us beyond that and tell us what contributed to this uh, victory. Um, Owen, we've seen outstanding turnout in Metro Atlanta, and, you know, we'll wait to see what the numbers look like. But what we suspect is is that in really strongly Republican districts, like Congressional District 14, for instance, we're going to see lower um, turnout, proportionally speaking, and that hurts the Republican candidates. Also, I think this is a strategic sort of question. Um, Because Donald Trump insisted on Election Day voting because he wanted a quick count, that's actually limited Republican efforts to be able to bank votes, and Democrats seized on it. And so in future elections, Republicans can't leave early votes on the table because if Democrats run up the score sort of, you know, in the early voting period and via absentee ballots, then it's really hard to make that up on Election Day. And do you really want to set yourself up for that one day? And that's part of the reason why we're having that discussion or we will have that discussion in the General Assembly um, this session about, you know, perhaps limiting absentee uh, voting and other kinds of things because, uh, but this is, that's just for gamesmanship purposes. So, I mean, I think, you know, you really have to rethink the idea of, of, of not telling people to go vote earlier, not telling people to vote by mail because they lost some votes as a result of that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I would say that um, what we saw yesterday was, uh, to a large extent, I think, a result of the Democratic voter mobilization effort. Um, there, there was a tremendous voter mobilization effort, particularly in Metro Atlanta, uh, door to door, um, even be- beyond anything that we saw in the November election. And the result was startling when you saw that the, the overall turnout in this runoff election was about 90 percent of the turnout in the general election. We've never seen a runoff election with those kinds of numbers. Now, I was looking quickly at, at, the, at the turnout numbers uh, uh, for some of the Republican and Democratic strongholds and, and, uh, and, the, and the voting patterns. And I saw two things going on. It's just a preliminary look at them. One is that the turnout in Democratic strongholds was somewhat larger than in Republican strongholds relative to the November election. It was still high all across the board, but in the Democratic strongholds like Fulton County, 
you know, the cab, although it wasn't complete yet, uh, it looks like the turnout it was over 90 percent, maybe 91, 92 percent of the general election turnout in some of these Republican strongholds like Hall County, um, Cherokee County. It was more like 87, 88 percent. So that's still, you know, very high turnout, um, but uh, not quite as, as, as high. In terms of margins, what you're seeing uh, in the Democratic strongholds across the board, you're seeing that. Uh, uh, Warnock and Ossoff uh, uh, overperformed. Uh, they, the margins exceeded those uh, of not only uh, of uh, you know, Warnock's margins, but also uh, Biden's margins uh, in, in the presidential election and almost everywhere. Uh, uh, in the Republican strongholds, what you saw is a little bit more of a mixed picture. There were a few places where, uh, where Leffler and Purdue actually got a bigger margin, a little bit bigger margin, but uh, uh, in a lot, in most of these uh, counties, they actually uh, underperformed a little bit. Their margin was down a little bit, uh, and so you put that all together, and the, and you and you end up with a swing uh, of a couple of percentage points uh, from November to now. And, and one of the things that I want to add as well, Bill, is that um, for many in, in communities of color. <clears throat> The, the victory of Joe Biden in Atlanta, in Georgia, uh, was inspiring to them because for many, many years they have felt like their vote didn't count and it was not possible. And, and to see that for that small margin, it was important to everybody's vote that it was counted, then we, we saw more enthusiasm for their run. <laughs> so I think that was the effect that the Joe Biden victory in our state in our state, had in, in, in communities of color. It was inspiring. You know, Greg, it's really fascinating. Alan points out what uh, we had this 90% of the general election turnout. In fact, right now, as of right now, in the Senate race, um, we are counting four point, almost 4.5, closer to 4.4 million votes. That is yeah. staggering, Greg. Uh, but beyond that, here's the other thing that uh, is is fascinating. We all know, you know, we've always said this was a turnout election. John Ossoff, yeah. un, he lo- lost. Ossoff got, what, 85,000 fewer votes than Purdue on November 3rd, or eight, 85, maybe more. And yet, he not only, and he underperformed Biden's turnout. And yet, Ossoff now is ahead of Purdue. I mean, that speaks to what Ellen and I are talking about and Mar- Marielle are all talking about, which is the incredible effort Democrats made to get voters to the polls. Yeah, it speaks to, it speaks to their ground game. I'm hearing a lot of finger pointing this morning from Republicans who are casting blame on Trump or or, or the state party chair, David, David Schaefer or, or, or Kelly Leffler or David Purdue themselves. But a lot of credit also goes to the Democrats for running an effective ground game of, of staying disciplined on their messages. There was no major gaffe that, that riled up Republicans in the final nine weeks. Um, all their attacks were kind of recycled from the general election campaign or for things that those candidates did or said years ago. Um, and, and really, you know, the decision by Democrats to get back on the field after a hiatus during the pandemic, I think, was was one of the key moments because during the pandemic, they went all virtual because they felt they had to, which, I, of course, I understand. But a week or two after the general election, they decided to go back on the streets in full force, knocking on doors, contacting voters in person, which is one of their traditional strengths. And they they played it up. They leveraged that strength in a major way. 
So I want to play a little bit, and Greg, you were there, uh, I think, when she spoke. I want to play just a little bit of Kelly Leffler's comments last night, because I think it is a good time to talk about how these uh, campaigns all uh, went after their voters, the messaging, uh, the, uh, uh, the arguments they made for why they should uh, be elected. So with that in mind, here was a little bit of Leffler talking to the crowd late last night when the tide was turning and it became clearer that she was in serious trouble. Let's listen. My opponent campaigned on a platform of high taxes, socialism, government control of our health care, stopping our school choice for our children. My campaign's about saving our country. Every legal vote will be counted, and I'm not going to stop working. Uh, In the morning, in fact, I'm going to be heading to Washington, D.C. to keep fighting. That's right. We're going to fight for this president. Okay, so, Greg, start with you on this. This was the messaging throughout the campaign by the Leffler folks. Um, It wasn't a message. I mean, it it was a strictly negative message. It was about socialism. Um, She even goes on to say, I'm going to go fight for Trump, meaning I'm going to go today to the Senate. She announced uh, on Sunday up in Dalton with the president that she was going to vote against the certification of the Electoral College. And, you know, I thought it was interesting to hear her repeating all these same messages last night. It apparently didn't dawn on anybody in her campaign that this kind of messaging had fallen pretty flat, Greg. Yeah, that was part of the Republican strategy from the get-go, not just of Senator Leffler, but also Senator Perdue, who, whose favorite line is that, that, that Democrats will leave you on a path, a uh, road to socialism, and he's going to be the roadblock. Um, and you're right. It's it's a fearful message. It's a message of, of what the other guys would bring, not what we would do. Um, and there wasn't much in, this, in the form of policy from the Republicans, only what they would block, not what they would promote um, if they retain the Republican majority. It was more of Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will stop Democrats from pushing this decision. Not that he would uh, bring a new health care plan. Not that they would lower tax. What, you know, whatever the, the the driving agenda is for Republicans, you didn't hear much of it on the campaign trail. Andrew, I, I, I you know, I, I, I'm debating sort of which direction to take this. I mean, I don't think there's any question that the Republicans' campaign was particularly negative. Um, and sometimes some of the things that they were trying to tap into demagoguery about didn't make sense. Like I think about David Perdue's litany of things that were wrong, and one of them was D.C. statehood, and it's like, ooh, that's so scary. Um, and, you know, other than the fact that, like, you know, it gets you Democratic senators. Um, but, you know, and Senator Leffler in, you know, was really interesting. Like, you know, she immediately went to Jeremiah Wright, um, you know, after the November 3rd election and then waited until two weeks ago to show the ad of her as a child with braces and an eye patch. And I'm like, that should have been your first ad. Um, and then you could have come back to that at the end, which was which was interesting. But I think the biggest mistake um, that David Perdue in particular made because he had more time to do it was that he did not cultivate a personal vote. And we know that in polarized times, and Alan can talk about this better than I can, that you know, we don't see much of a personal vote. But David Perdue has been aloof as a senator, and I think it's time to acknowledge that. And so because of that, both of them had to ride Donald Trump's coattails. So I totally understood why she got up and pandered to the crowd and said, don't worry, 
I've got you on Wednesday in case that was going to get her a few extra votes. But she had to do it because she doesn't have much of a record to speak on because she's only been in office a year. David Perdue has had six years to cultivate a base, to cultivate constituent services, to do things that might actually help give him distance from Donald Trump. And the fact that proportionally speaking, he didn't outperform Donald Trump, but Cory Gardner, who lost in Colorado, did, is something that's very telling. And they're going to need to reflect on that. Uh, I agree, complete, agree completely with that. The, uh, the message was almost totally negative. There was almost no uh, discussion whatsoever uh, from the Republicans about what they wanted to do if they got back to the Senate. What do they think should be done to deal with this terrible uh, uh, pandemic and economic crisis that we're dealing with? Instead, it was trying to scare voters about terrible things that would happen if the Democrats got in power and, and all of a sudden illegal immigrants would be voting and the police would be defunded and all these terrible things would happen. But I want to focus on something else that I think really helped turn the tide for the Democrats. And it's uh, it's and, and that's the way Donald Trump has conducted himself since November 3rd, uh, not not just in these last uh, a few days uh, before this election, but this entire uh, post-election period in which Trump has been focused almost entirely on trying to overturn the results of the presidential election uh, and devote virtually no attention whatsoever to the problems that are facing this country right now, uh, and including facing the worst part of this pandemic, more people in, uh, infected, more people hospitalized, more Americans dying every day, and then the very slow, painful rollout of a, a vaccine, which was his big claim to fame. Uh, all these things that he could have focused on, when instead all he chose to focus on was airing his own grievances, trying to, you know, uh, without any chance of success, to overturn the results of the election and, and playing golf. And that was it. And, and I think that that hurt uh, Republicans here. I think that we saw Trump's approval numbers actually fell nationally uh, over the last month. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I think that it, that was at least in part uh, uh, one of the reasons why the Republicans lost these races. You know, Mariella, we got to get to a break. But before we do that, uh, one quick uh, note about this. When you th- hear the w- the Republican attacks over and over, the endless attacking, I, I can't help but wonder in, in the Hispanic community, um, e- even though there was never any messaging uh, directed at, you know, attacking his- Hispanics that, uh, uh, in any way, I can't help but wonder if it didn't remind some of the voters in the community of the ways in which Donald Trump had demonized, he demonized many, many groups. And that negative, that negative messaging may very well have triggered in people this reminder that this, this, Trump is a guy who w- was always demonizing minority communities. Does that make any sense at all? Yes, it makes sense. But also the Republicans missed an opportunity here. Uh, and it was to talk directly to uh, the, the Hispanic community. You are correct. Many Latinos, especially educated Latinos, will see in Donald Trump a demagogue, and that will trigger, uh, you know, strong men in Latin America. But also, you know, when Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue started to say that the Democrats were going to become, make this country a socialist country, that scared many Latinos. And, you know, we had a lot of um, ads, ads from Loeffler and also from Purdue the first time. 
in in in, in Warnock as well, and and also they decided to uh, speak with our audience through ads. But at the beginning of the race, uh, when we it was clear we were going to go into a runoff, strategies for both Purdue and Loeffler they came to us because they wanted to have a one-on-one interview with both candidates. And I already have interviewed Senator Purdue. And as Donald Trump started attacking the results of the election, they started making excuses and we could never got them on air on the show like I had uh, also in, in Warnock. And I think they missed an opportunity because that messaging of socialism would have worked with some Latinos. And, and, and they, you know, it, it was Warnock, the, the one who was able to respond to that very, very well. Which speaks to what uh, Andre was saying. Purdue didn't talk to many people. I mean, Purdue did mm-hmm. uh, keep to himself throughout the campaign mm-hmm. in a surprising way. Let's get to our first break of the show. When we come back, who's going to get the blame? I'm really interested in hearing what the panel thinks about uh, who gets blamed for the Republican uh, parent losses in the Asaf race and certainly in the Warnock race. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Dr. Alan Abramowitz, Dr. Andre Gillespie, Mariella Romero from Univision, and Greg Bluestein from the AJC join me uh, today. A uh, quick question, Alan. A uh, couple of viewers or uh, listeners wonder why uh, Ossoff is running behind uh, Warnock. I mean, it's, I think the difference is about 18,600 votes, but does that suggest there's some ticket splitting that went on as far as you can tell? I know we got to look at this more closely in the days ahead, yeah. but what does that mean to you? Well, there, there clearly was a little bit of ticket splitting, um, and we always knew there would be some, um, but it's very, very small. Um, right. Uh, you know, what we saw, in the, and this was similar to what happened in the November election, so Maybe three, four percent of voters are splitting their ticket between these two races for whatever reason. Um, I, I always expected Warnock to to do a little bit better than Ossoff, or put it another way, I expected Leffler to do worse, uh, a little bit worse than Purdue. Uh, and part of it has to do with the fact that Kelly Leffler uh, was appointed to her job, uh, and just the, by virtue of the fact of being an appointed, we know appointed senators ha- have a pretty poor track record when it comes to actually winning their races. Um, and then she was, you know, in, in that situation, she didn't have the history of having actually won a, an election uh, on her own in, in the state. Mm-hmm. Andra, weigh in. So, you know, I was in anticipation of this question. I started looking at the county vote totals. And so it was really interesting to compare Ossoff and Warnock in particular. So, you know, my first hypothesis was, well, let me just go to Chatham County because that's where, you know, Warnock was from. And he was a few hundred votes ahead of Ossoff there. But as I started to look at other Democratic-leaning counties, it, that was always the case. He'd be ahead by, you know, a few dozen points if it was a small county or a few hundred points if it was a medium-sized county or maybe a couple thousand if we're talking about one of the big metro counties. And so it doesn't seem like it's concentrated anywhere. And this is where the limitations of polling come in. 
So the exit poles are all weighted to the same thing, and they're going to have to readjust those weights. Uh, but we, you just can't get the type of granularity that we're seeing here with sort of, you know, pulling samples out. So, you know, I'm looking for sort of the place, like, you can't quite tell sort of whether or not it was, you know, black people who voted for Warnock but then didn't vote for Ossoff or exactly what's going on here. So it's just going to take a little bit more digging for us to, to yeah. figure this one out. Well, Andra, I, I would, I think it's fair to argue that people will be studying the Warnock campaign for a very long time to come. It was a model campaign, I think. And without regard to whether you wanted him to win or not, it was hard to argue, Andra, with the fact that he ran a flawless, almost, campaign. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the debate, so he wasn't perfect, and he certainly showed the fact that he <laughs> well, was sure. Uh, but they did run. They, I mean, they did run an excellent campaign, um, you know, and the also team ran an excellent campaign. And so we do have to give them credit for that. OK, Absolutely. I mean, I understand that. Uh, but I thought when it came, Greg, what I'm suggesting here is that Warnock was able through his positive advertising uh, to establish a, per, a sense of his personal character that I thought really served him well in, in the middle of all of the blistering attacks, Greg. Yeah, they did some very smart things early on. He wanted to present himself as the moral figure, the moral leader in the U.S. Senate, someone who would bring conscience to a to a divided Congress. Um, they benefited from the fact that for the first nine or ten months of this of the year of the of the campaign, Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins were just bruising and battering each other and barely mm. paid any attention to him. Um, they didn't even have outside allies. I kind of expected, um, you know, Republican groups to maybe yeah. up the ante and start attacking Warnock and bringing up some of the stuff we knew would come up during the runoff, uh, but they didn't. Um, and I think, and I don't know how much of this will play in, I don't know, but I think that that ad with the dog, with the beagle at the beginning um, of the uh, of the runoff cycle saying, hey, they're about to attack me with everything. Um, but yes, you know, I step on cracks every so often. Yes, you know, my, <laughs> I do love puppies. I think that, that helped uh, seed the ground and helped him defend and counter uh, some of those attacks. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Uh, I thought, you know, the uh, the puppy ads were great, <laughs> and and it's been pointed out that the ads were uh, an effective way to counteract, I think, some of the negative stereotyping that a lot of uh, white voters might have when it comes to you know thinking about this uh, uh, you know black candidate uh, uh, who, who might appear kind of frightening to to uh, uh, to some white white voters to kind of uh, uh, normalizing him, making him seem like he's just you know, you know, a regular guy. And also the end with the Christmas lights where he's trying to figure out how to hang the Christmas lights and <laughs> things like that. It was that's, very clever. that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. They, those yeah that's what very, I'm talking about. Very clever. Um, but, you know, if you're talking about blame, uh, uh, who, who, who's at fault here? There's a lot of blame to go around on the Republican side. And I mentioned Trump as, as I think the, the single biggest problem they had but he energized Democrats uh, uh, in a big, big way. Um, but frankly, I think the most blame should go to the Republican candidates, to, to, to uh, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. Um, you know, in, in number of ways, they were, they were, they were flawed candidates. Uh, and, and the Democrats really played up the class angle of this. And, and, and of course, the, the issue of the stock trades uh, played into this as well. But the idea here are two very, very rich, uh, um, privileged 
uh, uh, Republicans, you know, these are who claim to be populist in some way, but they're really part of the elite. Look at like they had that lifestyles of the rich and famous sort of ad uh, that, that they used against them. And I, I think that was effective um, in, in terms of uh, kind of reinforcing this image of the Republican Party and of the two candidates themselves as being just the sort of tools of the, of the very, very wealthy. Mary Ellen? I, I agree. I agree with that. And also, I think there were missed opportunities, especially with Kelly Leffler, to, to speak to women uh, and, and mm. really talk about issues that women care. And, and she instead uh, became someone that had to be more conservative than anybody else. She went to the right of dog calling and supported everything Donald Trump uh, said. And I think, um, you know, Donald Trump did not help her because she put her in that position. And also she was appointed by uh, Brian Kemp. And I believe also that um, Brian Kemp is hated by uh, many in the Republican Party in Georgia, many of the Trump supporters. You know, I visit quite often Athens, and always I see, you know, um, Brian Kemp signs, even before the election, you know, like a proud son of, uh, of, of, of that area of, of Georgia. And after the election, that sign was taken off. So, yeah. um, you know, I think like uh, Professor Mambrovitz said, um, you know, the candidates themselves are to blame. They also do also miss an opportunity. Uh, and uh, like Professor uh, Gillespie said, uh, he didn't have the, the track record, the base to support him. So uh, the blame goes to both candidates, in my opinion. All right. So, so Greg, Mariella sort of leads me to the question I wanted, wanted to ask you. Uh, Brian, <laughs> this does not... But this is not a good sign for Brian Kemp. Brian no. Kemp decided out of out of nowhere to pick Kelly Leffler to uh, fill that Paul uh, that uh, uh, Johnny Isaacson seat. Uh, Doug Collins he irritated many conservatives by doing that. Doug Collins uh, it inspired Collins to jump in to the race. Uh, this is, it, you know, as if Donald Trump isn't already angry enough <laughs> and attacking Brian Kemp uh, f- it already, uh, this is just going to double down. And I think Kemp, Kemp is really going to be uh, on the hot seat over this, isn't he? Yeah. I don't know how he navigates this type of, I wrote uh, around 4 a.m. this morning that Stacey Abrams got to exact some sweet revenge on, on Governor Kemp because, of course, you know, you mentioned Kelly Leffler was his handpicked appointment to, to the U.S. Senate seat. Well, Raphael Warnock was recruited by Stacey Abrams, who who helped him navigate the whole system, who helped clear the field and, and discourage other Democrats um, for, for running for this open U.S. Senate seat as well. So, hey, you know, she gets Raphael Warnock defeats Governor Kemp's appoint, appointee and weakens the governor at the same time because you know, we've been talking about a rematch between Stacey Abrams and Governor Kemp really since since November of 2018. But now he's got to also face Republican challenges uh, that will even further weaken him. Even if he survives them, he'll come out limping against the very formidable Stacey Abrams should she decide to run later this year. 
Uh, we're going to have to take a break, but I want to make a quick, uh, 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 give you a quick note right now. Uh, LeBron James has just suggested this morning that he may want to buy the Atlanta Dream. So I saw that. Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting development. Andre, before we get to our break, uh, I know the PSC race is something you've paid close attention to. You want to give us a quick? It looks like Bubba McDonald retains his. A seat in that race, although I don't know that it's completely over yet. There are a lot of votes for Democrats outstanding. What's your take? Um, well, I mean, I think the fact that uh, uh, that the PSC race held its own in terms of turnout relative to the Senate race, and the fact that McDonald held his own when his Republican counterparts lost, um, or looked like they're on the verge of losing, speaks to this idea of a personal vote. People know who Bubba McDonald is. Um, and yet, while he got some drop off from Democrats who didn't vote for that race, he also was able to, you know, just by the force of his presence in Georgia politics, maintain and hold his seat. And the fact that David Perdue did not do that, right, is a lesson for all of us. And it's a lesson for every uh, every uh, politician who wants to take their constituents for granted. Once you win the seat, you got to be present. You got to talk to people. You got to take hard questions from people. And I think uh, David Perdue, you know, uh, you know, once he gets over the shock of what has just happened is going to have to reflect on that, whether he wins or loses. That's a really good point. Bubba McDonald has been a big part of Georgia politics for 35, 40 years. He is well known around the state. Thank you for adding that. All right. Got to get to our final break. The show we will be back with more in just a moment. Quick program note, uh, because the Ossoff-Purdue race is still undecided, although it looks like Ossoff is likely to win it, uh, we're going to be live uh, this afternoon at 2 o'clock. And we'll also be following any kind of fallout that we're seeing uh, on the Republican side. We'll see uh, whether or not uh, President Trump continues to pound away at fraud in this election. And, of course, at 1 o'clock this afternoon, uh, Congress... Uh, begins its deliberations on what should be a pro forma um, moment in which they certify the Electoral College vote. We know that's not going to happen, so we'll be talking about all of that on a special live edition of Political Rewinded 2. I hope you join us uh, for that. Um, Alan, let's talk for just a minute about what's happening uh, today in Congress. We know that... um, there are going to be challenges to the certification of by the Electoral College in any number of states. Uh, we don't know exactly how many yet, but right. Georgia could very well be one of them. Uh, oh, yeah. What, um, and we've got a number of Georgia members of, of the House, and now Kelly Leffler adds her name to the senators who are going to challenge the right. certification. P- Purdue can't because he— Right now, is out of he's out of the Senate uh, uh, because his term ended on January third. Uh, what, what do you give us your thoughts on on this in a broad way? Well, this is really rather unprecedented, um, and and it's just another indication of the uh, lengths to which um, some Republican members of Congress uh, are willing to go to try to cater to the president and and to his base. Um, we know how this is going to end. Um, it's just going to be dragged on, drag on for hours unnecessarily. And in the end, Joe Biden is going to be certified as the winner. The votes certainly are not there. Uh, Democrats have majority in the House, so obviously they're not going to reject these challenges. 
And I, I'm very confident that a majority of the Senate are also going to reject these challenges. I've been impressed by the fact that quite a few Republican senators and mm-hmm. some member, House members have already come out and said that they will oppose this. Um, and uh, that includes some pretty conservative members of the House and Senate. Even a few members of the House Freedom Caucus have said they're not going to support this. Some very conservative senators, um, uh, like Senator Lee of Utah, said no, they're, they're, they're not going to support this. Uh, so I think it's going to go down in flames. Uh, the question for the future, especially in the aftermath of the results of these runoff elections, is, you know, is this going to be kind of a signal to Republicans now that it's time to put some distance between themselves and Donald Trump as he continues? You know, which he, he's not going to stop. He's going to keep doing what he does. Uh, he's going to keep raising, you know, these bogus uh, issues of, of voter fraud uh, about his own race and about these races. Um, but will we see more? Will Republicans now feel maybe that, that it's, uh, they can uh, uh, distance themselves from Trump after what happened in Georgia? Uh, that he's he's not necessarily the future of the Republican Party. All right, um, we're going to talk about uh, the, the the vote on certification of the Electoral College a lot more at two o'clock. So let me turn to a final subject that I think is really important right now. Uh, let me start with you, Mariella, and Andra, and uh, Greg, I really want you all to get a chance to weigh in. Mariella, Georgia apparently has elected two Democrats to the U.S. Senate. Georgia has tipped the balance of power. Democrats will be in the majority uh, starting when these elections are certified. Mitch McConnell will no longer be majority leader. Joe Biden will have a Senate that will, uh, will work with him to pass a, more, a, a, a bigger, uh, more robust agenda. Um, so Georgia has played this extraordinary role. And Georgia voters today, just give us your thoughts on what all this means. And then, Andre and Greg, before the show ends, you, you too. Uh, well, I, I think it means a, 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 it's a great victory for uh, the presidency of Joe Biden, especially in the first two years. But I will caution people if they think uh, uh, that, you know, immigration reform is going to be passing and a lot of um, very big and ambitious progressive bills. I don't believe uh, we can expect that. We're going to expect, uh, you know, the cabinet to be confirming in some, uh, you know, judicial appointments, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say that the Biden administration needs to create bipartisan agreement to really uh, have those progressive and big initiatives approved. Um, I can build on Mariela's point. Um, Yes, uh, Democrats will have a Senate majority, but it's going to be really easy for one or two senators to defect on lots mm-hmm. of things. So um, Twitter last night, Joe Manchin started uh, uh, started trending because people are like, he's the dude that's mm-hmm. in charge now because if he decides to align <laughs> with the Republicans on something, that's all she wrote. So, I mean, we should still expect that institutionally. This isn't going to eliminate all gridlock. It's probably going to manifest itself most easily in terms of confirmations, both for the Senate and then later for the judiciary. So, you know, uh, right now, Joe Biden is not going to necessarily have the same types of impasses that Barack Obama had towards the end of his term in office, where Mitch McConnell just wasn't considering judicial appointments. Um, I think the big final takeaway from this is that um, while this confirms that 
uh, Democrats are viable in the state of Georgia. I want to caution anybody from thinking that Georgia is blue. Georgia is not blue. We're just purple, um, as evidenced by the fact that, yeah, Democrats look poised to win these two Senate seats, but a Republican just won the PSC. And that's probably going to be the new normal where we're going to see split decisions and where we're going to have close elections. And so I think we all just have to accept that this is normal and not do what President Trump is doing, um, which is staying stuck in 2002 or 2006 and not realizing that we're in a, a new a new era and this is the new normal. Greg, why don't you weigh in and then Alan, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I agree with the professor. Uh, I get this question all the time. Is Georgia Virginia or is Georgia Florida? As in Virginia, does that mean Georgia you know, flips blue and then becomes a solidly Democratic state? Or is it more like Florida, which means not necessarily Republican uh, in, at every statewide election, but just close? And I think it's just going to be close. I mean, we can see 2022 in midterms when turnout tends to be a little bit low or it tends to be decently lower than presidential years. You could see Republicans maybe make a resurgence. You know, you could just see Georgia seesawing over the next decade. Who knows exactly how that'll happen? But but I think Georgia's dynamics are going to be very close for the, for the next decade. All right. Uh, so I, I take the points that Mariella and uh, and and Andra and you made, Greg, at the same time. I, I do want to point. And yes, we're still going to have some gridlock up there. But but Alan, this does make Joe Biden's uh, first uh, uh, hundred days in office somewhat easier, especially in terms of confirming cabinet uh, appointments absolutely. and and any other. Uh, go ahead. Oh, absolutely. And I do think on the on the uh, release. On, on the potential for a, a large-scale additional relief bill, uh, I, I think it makes it much more likely. Uh, and I think they'll get some moderate Republicans, because the key thing here is agenda control, that Mitch McConnell could keep things from coming to a vote. He's not going to be able to do that now, so Democrats can pass things that have majority support, which will in, possibly include some Republicans. One quick point I want to mention we haven't talked about is that the significance of the Ossoff election the Ossoff election is really, really important, not only giving them 50 votes. That's a six-year seat. That's six years. Warnock only uh. has two years. Warnock has to run again in two years. One minor point, uh, I'm pretty sure Ossoff is the first Jewish senator from Georgia. Yeah, I think, I, so I well. think that's exactly right. We have elected an African-American and a Jew to the United States Senate from Georgia. What a remarkable— Who would, who would have thought uh, it was uh, possible? <laughs> All right. Um, we're just about out of time uh, for our show today. By the way, though, I will point out, as long as we're mentioning Asaf, Asaf will be the youngest member, assuming this uh, mm -hmm. lead holds, to take a seat in the U.S. Senate since who? Senator Joe, Joe Biden, Biden Joe from Biden. Delaware, which is also a really interesting uh, little factoid uh, for today. Um, thank you very much, uh, Mariella Romero, Andre Gillespie, Alan Abramowitz, Greg Bluestein, uh, for this really wonderful conversation on a truly historic day in the state of Georgia. I hope everybody gets a chance to get some sleep uh, now, especially you, Bluestein. We're back live <laughs> with a panel at 2 o'clock uh, to talk about what's happening with the Ossoff race and what's going on up on Capitol Hill. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy, wear a mask, and congratulations on voting however you cast your ballot over the election uh, runoff election. See you later today.